The reading this morning is from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it that you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates, so they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah, and may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat, the Horite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you were going to meet with a financial advisor and you sat down uh, with him or her and he sat behind his or her desk and he said to you, here's my advice. I just want you to live in the moment. I just want you to enjoy the wealth that you have now. I, I want you, as a matter of fact, just to spend whenever you decide to spend. Just live in the moment. Would you retain such a financial advisor? Well, maybe that's your natural disposition, but probably you didn't go to him for him to reinforce your natural disposition to to live in the moment. It's likely you're looking for a financial advisor who says, put aside this amount of money in this particular kind of fund and you'll do well. Or in other words, don't live in the moment. Plan for the future. So why would anybody let's say, use a sermon title called Live in the Moment. Rather odd. I mean, unless that person was suggesting that every moment is eternal, or perhaps unless that person was suggesting that you needed to live in every moment, that is, live fully in the moment with a sense of readiness. I don't know who would compose a sermon title like that, but if you ever see one, give the person the benefit of the doubt because that may be 
what he means. As a matter of fact, it reminds me a little bit of Isaiah because, uh, excuse me, Nehemiah, because Nehemiah seemed to be the type of person who planned well, but actually lived fully in every moment with a sense of readiness. You can see it in everything he does. It begins in this passage that we just read in the first verse. You see Nehemiah, well, living in the moment. It's very simple. It's just a throwaway phrase if you're not paying attention to it closely. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. You know what that describes? <laughs> it describes a, ma- a guy who was just doing his job. There was nothing spectacular about it. He was just diligent at his task. Now remember, this same fellow we spoke about last week had a vision to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And that's in his head. But as he walks forward... He simply does his job. Readiness in the moment. Now, we must admit that his job was uh, a rather important job, which might make it even more interesting that he lived in the moment and didn't say anything for the space of some four months. His job was to be a cupbearer to the king. And a cupbearer to the king was a job of great importance because there's some sense in which he was the first line of protection for the king. Nothing passed through the king's lips without the cupbearer first tasting it. And for obvious reasons, if it was poisoned, the cupbearer would drop dead and the king would not. So it's a job of importance because he protects the king. Some suggest that the cupbearer of the king was not just one who sipped the wine, but also something of a bodyguard for the king. It was a rather exalted position. It was a position that required incredible trust. Really few jobs required more trust than that one. The king had to absolutely trust the man who took the wine before he gave it to the king. Suppose he was part of an inside plot. Suppose the king was to be poisoned. There's only one way for it to happen. For the cupbearer to know about it to switch the cups, to do something with a sleight of hand, and the king would be dead. So trust was an important part of his job. Protection was an extremely important part of his job. And let's put it another way. To be a cupbearer to the king was to be an insider, the ultimate insider. Again, some people suggest that the cupbearer to the king was the first line of protection like a bodyguard as well as the one who sipped the wine. But also he was the person, well, who was like a valet to the king. He was with him everywhere all the time. And if you're with the king everywhere all the time, you hear conversations that no one else hears. You understand things about the king's business that no one else knows or only a few people know. You know it all. Routinely, they tell us that cupbearers were the kinds of people 
that you might approach and say, Sir, Nehemiah, in this case, you're with the king constantly. Could you just put in a good word? It was a high-pressure position because of outside sources. He was an insider. He was simply doing his job as cupbearer to the king, an important job. But you see, the job was also demanding. Think about this. He was always in the king's presence. Let's put it another way. He had no life of his own. (laughs) Wherever the king was, the cupbearer was. Here's something else about the cupbearer that we know that often happened. If the king got mad, frustrated, angry in some way with his cupbearer or anybody else in his court, he could banish them or he could kill them. You remember the story of Esther. She went in with a trembling heart and perhaps trembling hands, knowing that all the king had to do was refuse to put out the scepter and her life would be extinguished. The cupbearer is in the presence of a king who can do this at any moment. No recourse, no court of appeals. It just happened. So what did Nehemiah do under those circumstances? He lived in every moment fully by just doing his job faithfully. Um, In the book of Zechariah, we hear a reference that's variously translated uh, a number of different ways, but the translation I like the most puts it in the emphatic voice. It says, don't despise the day of small things. Or let's put it differently. Don't despise the routine of your day, Nehemiah. Live in that moment. Always be ready. By the way, Zachariah's comment related to Ezra who before Nehemiah, if we have our chronology correct, laid the foundation of the temple and built it. And now Nehemiah was trying to go back to protect it with a wall. So Nehemiah is, it seems, living in the moment in the proper sense of the term. But while living in the moment, you also notice that Nehemiah is surprised by the moments. On one occasion, he's startled, he's awakened. He's, if he were asleep, fully awake now. Because in the end of verse 1, the beginning of verse 2, we hear these words. I'd not been sad in his presence, that is the king, before. So the king asked me, why does your face? Imagine Nehemiah giving him the cup like he did routinely every single day, repeatedly every single day. And the king looks at him as he gives him the cup and he says, your face is sad. You look gaunt. But I know you, Nehemiah. You're not sick. This can be nothing, the king said, but sadness of heart. Nehemiah, who's living in every moment well, was completely caught off guard. He was stunned. As a matter of fact, he was shocked 
with fear. The next words are these. I was very much afraid. You might just translate it, I was terrified. You say to yourself, why? Why Why be terrified? The king is just asking a question about your well-being. He notices that you don't seem well, and it's not sickness, it's sadness. Well, maybe. We don't know for sure. But maybe, and I think it's likely, Nehemiah just wasn't supposed to be sad in the presence of the king. You put on your best face. When you work, went to work, you put on your big boy pants. You didn't let your emotions show. And if you had any emotions, they related to joy for the king. It wasn't about you. It was about the king. Perhaps Nehemiah knows his place and realizes that if in the king's presence he's downcast and sad, it could be foreboding for his future. Maybe slapped around, maybe fired. It seems bizarre to us in the 21st century but possibly executed? Maybe that's why Nehemiah is terrified. You can see and feel Nehemiah's terror at the moment. And then he responds this way. May the king live forever. I mean, how common is that response? <laughs> it, it always happened. It was the opening phrase to address any king. It rolled off the tongue, maybe without even thinking. And it was fully appropriate to address the king that way. So maybe I'm reading into it, but just stepping into the moment. He's trembling inside himself and perhaps outside himself. And he steps into the moment that has shocked and surprised him by moving into his comfort zone, which is exactly what everyone says to the king. Oh, king, may you live forever. Or let me put it this way. Hang on just a second. Let me catch my breath before I faint. O king, live forever. And then he gathers himself enough to say this to the king. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. O king, live forever. I have a reason for my sadness in this moment. I think you can relate. It's an interesting response, isn't it? There's all kinds of things he could have said, but living fully in the moment, he seemed to realize that this is what he should say. We conjecture as to why he responded that way. And all of this is conjecture, we have to admit. But it's quite possible, I think likely, even though conjecture, that Nehemiah realized if he just put it out there, the whole enchilada about Jerusalem and the wall and all that, it wouldn't go off very well. So he starts gradually. He just says to the king, The place where my ancestors are, it's in ruins. And my heart is sad. Why? Because perhaps the king understands that. Perhaps he understands respect for the dead and ancestors and family and 
and he touches his heart. And perhaps that's why Nehemiah speaks as he does. I think it was a wise response. He kept it personal, not in a negative way. He kept it personal and didn't make it political. He could have made it political, as we'll see in a moment, but he didn't. He just said, oh, king, live forever. I'm sad. Here's why. I'm only telling you part of the story, king, but it's true. So first, you see him living in the moment, and then second, in verses 2 through 3, you see him surprised by the moment. But by the time you get to verse 4 and following, we see a man who is ready for the moment. Yes, maybe he's terrified. Yes, maybe the life that he lived was rather humdrum and confining as a cupbearer to the king. But when the moment approached and he was terrified, he was also absolutely ready. He'd been planning for the moment, whatever it was, for a long time. And here's the moment. The king responds to him with these simple words. So what is it you want? What do you want? Now, if I'm Nehemiah and knowing his vision and his plan, I'm having a hard time staying inside my robe at this point, right? I want to jump right out, start to shout. I've got a plan. Let me tell you about it. It doesn't seem like Nehemiah approaches it in a, in a shrill, bombastic way. He just very carefully answers the king. And once again, he answers the king in what I would say is a discreet way. He says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, if I have been living in every moment in your presence well, then let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so I can rebuild it. Then he proceeds even further. And also he said, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates. That was that whole section down through the Palestine area, the section that he was far away from, that the king actually was the sovereign over. And in each of those sections, there were governors who managed the king's business and collected his taxes and repaired his roads and did everything. He said, can I have some letters sent to those people, those governors in the trans-Euphrates region? He had this all planned out. And, he said, may I have a letter sent to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, probably the cedars of Lebanon. Can I have some lumber? I need it to um, build the gates for the citadel. And then Nehemiah's response, not to the king, but to us, is this. Because the gracious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my request. This is a man who had a plan, and he was ready. But I want you to notice something else. When the king said, what do you want? What is the first thing that Nehemiah did? He didn't launch into his plan. He prayed to God. It was silent, perhaps desperate, perhaps calm my fears. 
We don't know what he prayed. You know, we got Instagrams now. This was a prayerogram. Boom. It's out there. The king just asked a really important question. God, I need some help here. Give me the breath to speak. Help me to remember what I'm about to say. He prayed to God. I, I think it does remind us of the importance of living in every moment so that every moment is a moment where we're in the presence of God. <laughs> and we speak to God about the moment. Because God is always present in every moment, especially if we understand every moment to be an eternal moment. God is present in those moments. And so Nehemiah says, oh God, please give me some help here. You know what Nehemiah could have said? Here's what he could have said. He could have said, well, here's what you can do, king. You can reverse the stupid decision that you and your predecessors implemented before this date. Why? Because Ezra was building the temple and the king because of a complaint of a man called Sanballat that you see at the end of this passage halted the building of the temple. He halted the progress that Ezra had set out to do. Now, he's no fool. He knows what he did. And Nehemiah is standing in his presence. Don't you think Nehemiah might have had an impulse to say, here's how you can fix the problem you created? Okay, maybe you don't think that way, but I got to admit I do. Because when I'm in a position like this, it's hard for me, pardon the insult that may come with this. It's, pardon, it's hard for me not to be lawyerly. It's hard for me not to be a person who's standing up in front of a witness and cross-examining them and pointing out the inconsistency. I immediately want to say, are you kidding me? Here's what you can do. Fix the problem you created. That's the immature side of me. That's the not-so-wise side of me. Unfortunately for Nehemiah, it wasn't the words that came out. Nehemiah was ready with a plan, and he knew exactly what he wanted, and he very calmly asked. You know how important it is to be ready? <laughs> to live in the moment that way? To be ready for the call of God? To be ready to do what you know you're called up to do? Whatever that is. You know, I uh, love baseball, just about every sport, but sometimes people get tired of my baseball stories. So you can take out your earpiece if you don't like baseball. I'm about to tell a baseball story. Um, there's a legendary story uh, about Hank Aaron and Yogi Berra. Um, now, Yogi Berra was a catcher. And if you know anything about Yogi Berra, he's famous for all these pithy sayings, right? He says all these crazy things that make sense but don't at the same time. One thing that was also characteristic of Yogi Berra when he was a player is he was behind the plate constantly chattering and saying these pithy things that we now know of as legendary. And on one occasion, Hank Aaron, everybody knows who Hank is, came up to bat. 
as he stepped up to bat, he held his bat, and Yogi, continuing his constant chatter to try to distract the batter, says to Hank Aaron, Hank, you need to hold your bat right. You're not doing it right. The trademark needs to be facing you. Hank Aaron didn't even look at him. He just watched the next pitch come in, slapped it over the left field wall. Another home run. I don't know if you remember images of Hank Aaron running the bases. Whenever he hit a home run, it's like he kind of loped around the bags. And he kind of circled around, heads past third, runs into home, crosses the plate, and then stops and turns to Yogi. And he said, I didn't come up here to read. (laughs) Don't talk to me about some stupid trademark. (laughs) I'm not looking at print. I'm looking at the ball. Hank Aaron knew exactly what he was at the plate for. It was to hit the ball. Nehemiah knew exactly what he was there for. He didn't know how the details would come together in the moment. But when they did, he knew the plan. And he was ready to move. I I think when you think about this story, there's a few points of summary um, that are helpful. The first thing you notice about Nehemiah is he lived patiently. Or could we say he waited patiently in the moment? I ran across a quote this week from Dale Carnegie. That was great. I tweeted it, by the way. I've got like six followers, but if you want to join, you can. Um, here, here was a quote from Dale Carnegie. He said, if you want to gather honey, don't kick over the beehive. <laughs> Isn't that great? If you want to gather honey, don't kick over the beehive. If you, if you want to wait for God to work in your life, Don't kick over the beehive. Don't be impetuous. Don't grab everything and make a mess of it. Because in God's economy, waiting time is not wasting time. Waiting time is preparation time. And you may feel like you're in one of those waiting times. Matter of fact, we always are if we live in the eternal moment. So it's clear that he waited patiently, Nehemiah, and um, he watched for God. The question is for us, do we live patiently and wait patiently or do we try to manipulate all the moments of life for our own ends? You know, often a sign of impatience is just simply talking too much. Really. There's a whole lot of times it's just better to be quiet. There's certainly a lot of times, like Nehemiah, that it's better not to say everything you know or everything you believe or everything you think they ought to hear. Waiting patiently sometimes means just not talking so much. It's also true that waiting patiently for Nehemiah uh, included doing his job. 
which, by the way, was not in any way essentially linked with the mission. It didn't seem to have a connection at all, except that he was an insider. The question for us, I think, among others, is what about your job? Your circumstances? Are they boring? Your job or circumstances? Second question, does it matter? If you're truly living in the eternal moment, does it matter? Or maybe your vocation is thoroughly secular, as Nehemiah's was. Has got nothing overtly to do with the kingdom of God, as you see it. What difference does that make? Can I give you an answer? None. It makes no difference that your job is thoroughly secular. Now, when you live in the eternal moment, are you out of sight? So behind the scenes that you're not even a number. You're virtually invisible, you feel, in your current position or circumstances. Why be concerned? If there's a God who is the sovereign one of the universe that governs all the affairs of humanity, surely your quiet, out-of-the-way place must have a part in God's design. Nehemiah, you see, it seems, accepted his job, which was thoroughly secular, though highly profile. He accepted his job, I think, as a divine assignment. Shouldn't we do the same? Your job, a divine assignment? You know, it's true. In the Christian view of things, your job is a divine assignment. Whether you know it or whether you believe it, you're a Christ follower. So everything about you points to Christ. Second thing I I see in this story by way of summary is that Nehemiah understood his position. Nehemiah was absolutely right, okay, about Judah, Jerusalem, about the people who, like Sanballat, were trying to stop them. He was absolutely right in his perspective concerning the activity of God in that land to restore his people. He was on the same page as God. He was right. But in his correctness, he did not become disrespectful to those who were his authorities. You know, the dark side of righteousness sometimes is arrogance. Been there, done that. The more righteous I feel, the more open I am to the sin of arrogance and pride. I think we need to think about Nehemiah and be careful to that that place where we may stumble. Another thing um, I realize about Nehemiah is that he realized that careful planning 
was not contrary to faith. Sometimes we hear people talk about their desire to do something for God. And they talk about how God's called them to some ethereal kind of thing. And it seems their heart is so right and so attuned to God and God's purposes in the world. But on occasion, you may ask them, what's your plan? Sometimes those people, I'm sure you've never known of any of them, but sometimes those people are almost offended that you ask, do you have a plan? Because somehow in their minds, they think a plan is, well, inconsistent with faith. And maybe after asking them a while about their plan, you realize and even they realize they don't really have one. And so frequently the default mechanism for such a person is to say, well, I'm just trusting God. I'm just waiting on God to open the doors. I really don't have a plan. Now, I don't want to demean that kind of faith entirely, okay? There are certainly times that we wait for God to open doors. Nehemiah is an example of that. But parallel to Nehemiah's waiting was a well-formulated plan that he was ready to implement when given the opportunity. And that tells us that planning is not incompatible with faith in God. A well-planned event, a well-planned ministry is a good thing. A final thing I noticed from Nehemiah here is that he viewed circumstances as an outline for the sovereignty of God. See, if you were to look at my sermon, it's always on one page. Not a complete sentence there anywhere. Just an outline. The outline indicates something to my brain that I'm about to say. In this case, what I'm saying is not on the outline at all. As a matter of fact, there's not even a trigger point to remind me to say this because I hadn't thought of it until now. (laughs) But when I preach, I preach from an outline. Now, at the risk of sounding really sanctified. I'm going to take the risk. I put this outline together. I have thought about it a lot. I've studied a lot. I prayed. And then I expect that somehow this outline directs me to say what I think God wants to say to us. I think Nehemiah saw circumstances and his job like that. Every one of the circumstances, even the ones that he had no idea, were on the outline. All of those circumstances were just headings for the fill-in of God's work. So when he looked at the kingdom of this king, Artaxerxes, 
He didn't say to himself, I got to make sure that everything's lined up appropriately. He had no idea how to line up everything appropriately. He could only implement his own plan. And he trusted God for the outline of human history to converge in perfect synchronization with God's will in his life. As a matter of fact, if Nehemiah had wanted to, he could have been thoroughly historical about the whole thing. And maybe he knew some of these things. He could have said, now is the time. I know it's the time because at about 460 BC, he wouldn't have said that, Egypt produced a revolt that caused this great kingdom that Artaxerxes now rules to have to deal with. That's to the south. There's troubled waters down there. And the king knows it. He might have said, well, you know, I know something else. In the 440s B.C., some 20 years later, it goes backwards, by the way, some 20 years later, King Artaxerxes, he knows about a northern rebellion in Syria. You see, I know what's going on. There's trouble in the north and there's trouble in the south on this Mediterranean-Palestinian ridge. What the king probably needs is a little stability and a little loyalty right in the middle. And maybe I can be that stability and that loyalty to him. Maybe I, the cupbearer of the king, can propose that we erect a wonderful wall around Jerusalem. And he knows me and he trusts me and he'll see me and Jerusalem as, well, a safe haven of support between two revolts, north and south. I have no evidence that Nehemiah had those thoughts. I do have evidence that that was happening. And I do know kings well enough to know that they knew their kingdom. And I could speculate that King Artaxerxes decided to send Nehemiah for that very reason. And you know what? I could view that whole thing as secular history. I say I could. No, I can't. I don't even have the ability. Because from my perspective, a sovereign God directs the king's hearts like a waterfall in his hands, as Proverbs 21, 2 says. And he does with them what he pleases. What seems like ordinary secular history is evidence of a sovereign God. Can I put it this way? Moving the chess pieces to accomplish his will. So if you believe that, and I hope you do, then live in the moment. Live in it fully because God is working through you to accomplish his will. Let's pray. Our gracious, almighty, and sovereign Lord, 
We thank you that we are not on this earth alone. Not just because we have people around us and friends and family, but we're not on this earth alone because the sovereign Lord, the one to whom we pray right now, is the great king of the universe. And our times are in your hands. And the times of our world are in your hands. And all the chaos that we see around us is somehow in your hands. We don't have to understand it to believe it. But we pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear in such a way that we really do live in the moment. The moments of your sovereign grace. Watching and waiting for how you will allow us to be part of this great plan. We thank you, Lord, for working out your will in the lives of so many millions of people. We, quite frankly, Lord, sit here in, in absolute security and peace. We know comfort. We don't experience war. But as we think about the news events that are all around us this week, we realize that people, Christian and non-Christian, face a different world. We hardly know how to pray. But Lord, we pray that you, the sovereign God and judge of all people, will orchestrate events in such a way that your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth, just as it is in heaven. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.